Happy Advent, Happy Thanksgiving. Good to get to be together to worship God and open His Word. So you are going to want your Bible this morning. And if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Matthew chapter 1. If you need a Bible, we have some people walking around. Slip up a hand and they will put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. One of the most precious gifts that we could offer, the, the living Word of God. And so... Uh, we will dive in this morning as we begin uh, our Advent season. Advent, these, these four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, uh, the celebration of the arrival of God and the birth of Jesus. And uh, in Advent, it, it literally, it means arrival. It is uh, used to denote like the arrival of a, a great uh, person or a, a great event uh, it, it is the expectation of something amazing happening. And so in Advent, uh, as the church uh, around the world takes these few days leading up to Easter, I mean, uh, not Easter, that's the other big holiday, <laughs> leading up to Christmas uh, to, uh, to recognize that this is the greatest arrival, the greatest expectant event in the history of of the world. Now, so you know, Christmas Eve, uh, we will be celebrating December 24th this year, and it is on a Sunday. And so because of that, we, uh, we decided um, to have, uh, that we would have a, a Sunday morning gathering like normal, but at 10, just 1, 10 a.m. Sunday morning gathering, and then two big Christmas Eve worship celebrations uh, with all the fun um, and, uh, and the carols, all that at 3 and at 5 p.m. And then we're going to do something a little bit different this year. Uh, we are going to have a, just a small, intimate, uh, 11 p.m. candlelight and communion service. Uh, and that may end up being just me and Steve. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny, though, because we really did ask a lot of people, because we were trying to decide, well, how, do you, how do we do this with it being Sunday, uh, Christmas Eve being Sunday this year? Do we just do morning worship like normal or uh, Christmas Eve services? And I grew up loving the 11 p.m. I mean, like there's just something magical about that late, late night, uh, you know, moving to midnight on Christmas Eve and all that expectant get anticipation, Advent, uh, the arrival of, of Christmas morning. Um, but I was like, we were kind of throwing it out to different people asking, hey, what do you think? What time would you be excited about? What works best for your family? And so every time I would mention the 11 p.m., immediately, every person I asked, what about 11 p.m.? They would go, oh, no, no. I mean, I mean, we're in bed at that point or building toys or whatever, you know, Santa's workshop, whatever they're doing. And, uh, but inevitably, almost every time, an hour or two later, I would get a call or a text, and they'd be like, oh, I was actually thinking about that 11 p.m. service, and I think it could be pretty cool. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, hope you'll join us for at least one of those. And also, um, this really is one of the best opportunities to invite friends and neighbors, coworkers, uh, people in your family that don't normally come to church. Uh, a lot of people come to church for Christmas that, uh, that don't have a relationship with Jesus. And so uh, I encourage you, think about who are those people in my life that I could, could bring to encounter God in, in the celebration of Jesus that night. And so with that, we'll have some uh, little yard signs that you can grab next Sunday um, and, uh, and put that in your yard to just help us get the word out about the different uh, worship gatherings that we'll have here at Grace Monroe. And so 
with Advent, um, if you've been a part of Grace for a while, you know, this is part of our regular church rhythm. But for many of you that either didn't grow up in a church or maybe your tradition didn't, didn't uh, highlight Advent, you know, we already said the meaning of it is uh, the, literally just means arrival, um, the season of expectation. But obviously in, in the Advent, the arrival season, it's recognizing uh, 2,000 years ago, the arrival of Jesus, God in the flesh, the word that became flesh full of grace and truth. And so we look back to the arrival of God, uh, God with us, Emmanuel, in the birth of, of Jesus that first Christmas morning. But also in the Advent season, we're reminded that we live in this in-between the now, but the not yet of the kingdom. Jesus who came announcing the kingdom of God, but Jesus who will come back one day for us all to judge the living and the dead, to, to, to finally once and for all wipe away sin and death, to wipe away every tear and to restore fully what God always intended from the beginning. And so uh, we look in this, or we remember in this Advent season, yes, the, the arrival of Jesus in the past, but also the expectation of the arrival of Jesus to come in the future once and for all. But thirdly, it's not just about remembering the arrival in the past or the arrival in the future, but it's an invitation to open our hearts to the arrival of Jesus in our present day lives right now. A God who is just as real and present in this room as the person sitting next to you. A God that, that never sleeps, that, that, that watches you as you slumber, that is, is expectantly waiting for the invitation to be brought into the present reality of your life. Whatever baggage you brought into this room this morning, whatever happened this week, whatever you're grieving or celebrating, Whatever the weight that you're carrying that sometimes feels like it might just crush you, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, the living, present reality of God for you, for me. And so in Advent, we are reminded in this season of the arrival of Jesus who came, the arrival of Jesus to come, and, and the arrival of Jesus into every present moment of our lives. It's a beautiful season. But the early church actually uh, understood the Advent season leading up to Christmas as a season of repentance, a season of, of reflection, of, of returning our hearts back to God in the ways that we are so easily and subtly led astray. And so during the Advent season, they actually saw that as a season of fasting. Now, most of the time, we don't think of the Christmas season as a season of fasting, but feasting, right? Um, especially Thanksgiving is definitely not a, a holiday of fasting. So it's appropriate that Advent comes after Thanksgiving. But uh, they, they saw it as a season of fasting. And traditionally, the early church uh, would fast Monday, Wednesday, and Friday leading up to Christmas. Um, and uh, from the way the fast would work, it would be to abstain from eating from the sunrise of the day, sorry, the sunset of the day before to the following sunset. So if you're going to fast, for example, starting tomorrow, which would be the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, first Monday, Wednesday, and Friday leading to, to Christmas, you would start tonight at sunset and abstain from eating until sunset Monday night and then Wednesday and Friday. 
And, uh, and the, the point of fasting isn't just simply abstaining from food, though it involves abstaining from food, but it's about recognizing there's a deeper hunger in our soul that no food can provide for, that no substance or entertainment or person, there's a hunger in our soul that only God can fill. And in this season of arrival, I want to invite our church into intentionally, I love that we're beginning uh, with the worship night right here at the beginning of, of December. But I also want to encourage you to enter into a season of fasting. Now, if you've never fasted regularly in your life um, and three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that seems like a lot, then just pick one. Just say, okay, as a family, or for me personally, just me and God, Monday or Friday, whatever it is, but, and then I would encourage you from sunrise, sunset of the evening before through sunset of that day to just allow the, the physical hunger that we inevitably feel by not feeding our bellies to point our hearts and mind to God who can fill our soul. And so I invite you into that. Obviously, it is, uh, that is... Uh, it, between you and God, um, but I, I think it'd be a beautiful thing for our church to engage in together this Advent season. And so Advent is most is best personified by John the Baptist. Matthew th uh, 3, 1 describes uh, John the Baptist who came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That is the invitation to Advent. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Lord, is there any obstacle in your path that I'm set putting up? Is there, any, is there anything I'm putting in your way of you having full reign and rule in my life? And John chapter one, turn to it. The, the gospel writer begins declaring, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came simply to bear witness about the light, that the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's the song that we just sang. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
And so one of the pictures of Advent and the Advent season, this, this season of anticipation, of arrival, of repentance, of turning our heart to God, of making straight the path for God to have full reign in our life is the lighting of the Advent candles, this picture of the light coming into the world. And then as Jesus, uh, as, or God, uh, who took on flesh and as the message says, moved into the neighborhood, that when Jesus was born, God was birthing hope and peace and love and joy into the world with the arrival of Christ. And so each week we take one of those things that was, that was arriving into the world with the arrival of Jesus and focus on that during the Advent season. And today our word obviously is hope. And so we light the Advent candle recognizing the light of the world who is Jesus who came to bring hope into our world. Now, hope is one of those funny words that we uh, misuse a lot. I don't know that we misuse it, but we've, we've cheapened it, so to speak. You know, we often use hope almost like as, uh, as, a, as wishful thinking. You know, I hope I get that job, or I hope the Falcons win today. Some more likely than other, but we had this idea, like, I hope, I hope you come over. I hope, you know, we just throw that out. But in the Bible, the word hope was a weighty word. I mean, it was a word of, of just significance and depth every time that it's used. And in fact, so much so that, like, that, that to, to capture this sense of hope, uh, the, the Hebrew actually had two different words for it. One was the word yakal. Say that with me, yakal. And it means to wait for. And uh, it was used first by uh, no, talking about Noah in the flood, waiting in the ark for the storm water to recede, for his salvation and deliverance. That Noah, you call, he waited for God to deliver him. The second word is the word kava. Say that, kava. They're great words. And it's to anticipate. And it's, uh, it, it literally, it come, the root of the word kavah is, uh, it, it means a cord or a string. And it carries with it this idea of a string being drawn, or a cord being drawn tight in anticipation of its relief. Have you ever had somebody uh, pull back a rubber band and point it at your face? You're, you get a sense of kavah. Or of a bow, you know, as you pull a bow and you think about like that, that pulling of the bow and the greater the tension, the farther and farther as it's getting pulled in anticipation of that release. That, that, that is the word kavod. So you kind of get this sense, this gravitas of this world of Noah waiting for, it, for his deliverance out of the ark in the midst of the storm. Of that, that tension and the anticipation of, of arrival. It wasn't just simply about a cheery optimism. But it's solid expectation for God to come. It's used over 40 times, but those two words are used over 40 times in the Psalms. And every time it's used is specifically about waiting for... for the arrival of the Lord. So it's a perfect word to begin our Advent season. And this year, as we were praying about how we wanted to, 
to dive into the scriptures around Advent because there's so many different angles and facets of that uh, nativity story, the arrival of Jesus, looking at all the different uh, the characters that played a part in the birth of Christ. We actually felt led uh, to, to, to go back even farther to the words of the prophets that were in anticipation, pulling back the string of the bow, waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. You know, there are over 360 different pro- uh, prophecies throughout the scriptures that were all fulfilled in the birth, the life, the death, or the resurrection of Jesus. 360 by different people in different times, hundreds of years before Jesus would be born, fulfilling them all. In fact, for 400 years before Jesus was born, it was known that the prophets had gone silent. There wasn't a single word given from God to his people. And out of that 400 years of silence, or after that 400 years of silence, God shows up in a powerful way. Jesus himself understood the fulfillment of God in his life and his death. In fact, we talked about this uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, how after you know, Jesus, he lives his 30 years and in, ends up dying this, this brutal death on a Roman cross. And, um, and after the, he, he dies, it, it, the story that doesn't end with his death on a cross, but with the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate at Easter. And that first, uh, that, that first weekend after Jesus was crucified, there's a story of these two friends that are walking down this road out of Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And as they're walking along, Jesus, it says, comes alongside of them and is walking with them, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus, resurrected Jesus. And he asks them what they're talking about, and they're arguing and wrestling with the things that had just happened in Jerusalem. And they tell him, they say, hey, you know, well, I can't believe, are you a stranger to, the, to this area that you don't know what just happened? Everyone's talking about this. Because Jesus, who he thought was the Messiah, the anointed king, the fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies, that's what that carries that word Messiah, the king to come. And we thought Jesus was that Messiah. But then our hopes were dashed because they hung him like a common criminal on a cross and he died. But then they continue. Some of our women are now saying that they saw him this morning and he has risen from the dead. And it says that Jesus, turning to them, says, I'm gonna pull up that scripture in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. That all of the promises and the prophets of God, all of the words of the Old Testament, from Moses to the law, to the kings, to the judges, to the history, to the prophecies, all of it was pointing ultimately to Jesus. This, is what, this truth is what the early church held on to and radically formed their understanding of how God was working in the world. In Acts 3, as 
those early disciples, Jesus having resurrected and now ascended to the Father, made a promise that his Holy Spirit would descend on them, his very presence in them, and then would send them out into the world to be his witnesses of this good news of God's kingdom. And that, that, that says that that Pentecost Sunday, that, that the Spirit falls on these disciples and they immediately rush out into the street and begin declaring the gospel of Jesus in every tongue that all people could understand this good news in their own language. And it says that Peter stands up in front of the crowd and he begins to explain who Jesus was and what Jesus had just had done. In Acts 3.18, Peter declares, but in this way, God has fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would have to suffer. A few years later, uh, Peter would receive a vision that would lead him to the house of this Gentile man named Cornelius. And all of a sudden he would recognize in this radical transformation of his understanding of what God was doing, that his arrival, the kingdom of God's arrival wasn't simply just for the Jewish people, but was for all the people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And, and this conversation with Cornelius that would alter the course of Christianity Peter declares to him being Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Years later, the apostle Paul will be testifying before the king of the land, a guy named King Agrippa, and declaring what God had done in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he would declare, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, obviously, over the next four weeks, we're not going to be able to get into all 365 of those prophecies. But we're going to, my hope and prayer is that as we recognize what God has done throughout the centuries and his faithfulness in bringing his word to pass, one, that it will root us deeper in our own faith that we don't just have an arbitrary faith made up of a bunch of uh, superstitious philosophical ideals, but a faith rooted in history, a faith rooted in reality, in God working himself out through everyday ordinary human beings, that we have a faith that can stand, up, stand the test of time and, and a word in his scriptures that is, is found solid that you can build your life on. And secondly, that God is still just as faithful today and that he is always at work and most often in ways that we cannot see or we don't recognize until we look back and go, oh, oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, this is how he's been at work. And we take these 40-year detours that get us exactly where we wanted to go the whole time. 
Or he picks us up out of the place of, of complete loss or, or despair. And it feels like our world is crashing around us and we see how he's lifted us up to take us to higher places than we could have ever imagined. Or he washed the way that his, his grace rebuilds our lives when we've given up, that he restores our hope that he is not finished with us yet. And that we live into a story that is so much bigger than our own lives. For Matthew, as he's writing his account of Jesus' life, this is a consistent theme that he wanted his readers to get, that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises and his word through his prophets. Over and over again, and I would encourage you, um, as we go through this Advent season as a family, to, to read the book of Matthew and read it from this uh, perspective of fulfilling the words of the prophet because Matthew almost every chapter somewhere will, will throw in there just as the prophet said dot 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 or as it said it would come to pass dot 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 I mean he, he fills his, uh, his uh, account with these fulfilled prophecies <clears throat> but he begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That Jesus was the son of promise. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, literally the account of the Genesis, that's the word there, of Jesus. In other words, Matthew recognizes that he's writing a new Genesis, a new beginning, a second creation that God was restoring and redeeming in the world what he had first brought into the world all the way back in Eden. The account of the Genesis, the beginning of Jesus. It's a new creation. And in your Bible there, you can write Genesis 5.1 because Matthew echoes uh, the, the genealogies of Genesis, but he makes one significant but subtle shift in this first line of his gospel. In Genesis 5.1, it begins the account or the, uh, the, the book of Adam. And then from there it goes, starting with Adam, it, it goes from Adam to Adam's son and from Adam's son to his grandson to his great-grandson, great-great-grandson, and it follows the generations down, beginning with Adam and then flowing from there. But Matthew flips it and he actually begins with the end, the account of Jesus. And what Matthew is saying is, that all of history was pointing to Jesus and all of history flows from Jesus. That this new creation centers and roots itself in Christ. I won't go through the genealogy, though it's a, a fascinating study. Uh, I encourage you, I mean, they're not just random names, but it's intentional uh, how Matthew includes the, the genealogy leading up to Jesus. But it continues on in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 
14 generations. In other words, these major moments of Jewish history that Jesus is uh, flowing out of and the fulfillment of. But as he begins there with Jesus' lineage from the line of Abraham, we talked about this a lot the last couple of weeks, Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation, God says, talking to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses or dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Matthew declares in this new Genesis is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise given to Abraham centuries before that Jesus is the blessing for the world that they had long anticipated. He's from the line of Abraham, but he's also from the line of David. The prophets declaring that a true king was coming in the heart and the form from the line of David, the shepherd king, the unexpected warrior that defeated a giant, that led his people to victory, that this, there would be a king that would come one day in the make and of the line of, Jesus, of, of David, but that would bring true everlasting peace. Jeremiah 23, 15, the prophet declares, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That there would be a king that for once and for all would bring about a forever reign of justice and righteousness. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, son of the promise, the fulfillment of the prophets. But this wasn't just any son it was a miraculous birth. Matthew continues. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame because in his assumption, or he's trying to piece it together, uh, assumes some illicit union that he didn't know about, but he didn't want to embarrass her or shame her, so he resolves to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is in her is conceived from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Isaiah had said, had declared those words as God's prophet 740 years before the birth of Christ. 
And the people of God, the Israelites, had held on to that word of the prophets that one day there would be a king born from the line of David fulfilling the promise of Abraham and that king would reign and rule with justice and righteousness. And that king would bring everlasting peace. And that king would represent God to us just like the priests do now. And so by naming this king, Emmanuel, God with us, that the king would be a sign. Yes, God is for us. God is with us. But they never imagined that that king would actually be God himself. That never crossed their mind, that the savior they were longing for, the the one that was prophesied to come, would be God who would take on human flesh and be born a baby. This miraculous child of God. And again, this second Adam, this new creation, born of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the same way that in the first creation at a word, worlds came into being. In this second creation, at a word, God's miraculous work of creation begins inside the womb of a young woman. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, the first Gentile worshipers of Jesus here, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king, Matthew really wants you to get that he's the king. He's the guy that's in charge of the land. He's the one that thinks that that he's the top dog, that what he says goes, that as he wants it, it is what will be. And this king hears this and he's greatly troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And so he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquires of them where the Christ, where this anointed Messiah King will be born. And they told him because they know, because there's another prophecy in the book of Micah written about 735 BC, 700 years before the birth of Christ that declares Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's a hard word to say, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who's be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. And so these wise men from far away come to the man who's supposed to be the king and declare, hey, actually, we want to meet the real king. We saw his star rise up on the horizon and we followed it here. And they go back and they dig through the scrolls and they find out, okay, where is this anointed king supposed to be born? And they come back and they say, in Bethlehem. Now, this is significant 
because uh, Herod was actually known for being an incredible builder. And he was also an egomaniac. He wanted his name to be great over the whole land. And so he decided outside of Jerusalem, the capital city, to build himself a fortress that would rival any fortress in the known world. And so this is called the Herodium. Those of you that have been on Epic, we've taken you up there. And uh, you can come with us next time we go. And uh, it, is, um, it is a man-made mountain. And so there was a, a small hill and Herod had, uh, had his servants bring in heaps of dirt until he made this massive mountain. And inside the mountain is this hidden fortress. And he decided that on top of this man-made mountain that would be a fortress to rival any fortress in the world, he would build a palace to rival any palace in the world. Now, most of the palace is obviously in ruins, but to just get a sense of how massive this project was, this man-made mountain, is that uh, the Herodium, it rises 750 meters over the horizon. Stone Mountain is 500 meters. So this is 200 meters, 600 feet taller than Stone Mountain, dominating the landscape. You can see it from miles away. This, from, and from a distance, it looks like just a massive mountain, not realizing that it's a man-made mountain that is hiding inside of it, this massive fortress. And on top of this man-made mountain is this gorgeous palace. And it is to this giant mountain where Herod would have dwelled, standing on top of his power and his majesty, that these magi would have come and said, hey, could you tell us where the real king is? So you can understand why Herod was a little bit distressed. In fact, what we find out is that uh, Herod would dispatch his army to kill every child under the age of two just to make sure that this prophesied king would never live. But it's from this giant mountain that about two miles south of here was this little insignificant village called Bethlehem. And so when the Magi came and when his religious uh, uh, scholars came to him and said, you know, the prophet says that the, the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, he looked out over the horizon from his giant mountain and he sees this tiny little village that would actually be considered a dirty village because it was the village where the shepherds dwelled. And around Bethlehem are all these caves and inside of the caves were, were a safe place to keep sheep overnight. In fact, you can still go there today and see the caves surrounding Bethlehem and from Bethlehem see the mountain dominating the landscape in the distance. And he looked at this little tiny insignificant town from the top of his mountain. And in that little town, the hope of the world was being born a baby that would come that would undermine all the empires of the world, the true king, God himself in human form, coming to reclaim and restore and redeem what was rightfully his. And a few years later, Jesus would stand in the shadow of this mountain a few miles away from 
the little town where he was born. And he would make this amazing statement. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so we put our hope in a God that moves in miraculous ways, in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, that is always at work even when we can't see it, whose power is greater than the greatest imagined power of this world, that there is no situation that we find ourselves in that God is not bigger than. And there is a story that we find our place in that is so much bigger than any of our lives, a story that's rooted in history, declared by the prophets and fulfilled in Jesus. There's a great theologian, Walter Brueggemann, he wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination, and he writes this. It is there within and among us, for we are ordained of God to be people of hope. It is there by virtue of our being in the image of the promissory God. It is sealed there in the sacrament of baptism. It is dramatized in the Eucharist until he come. It is a structure of every creed that ends by trusting in God's promises. Hope is the decision to which God invites Israel, a decision against despair, against permanent consignment to chaos, oppression, barrenness, and exile. We are people of hope. We are seeds of hope planted in this dark and desperate world, holding on to the promises of God who will always make himself known to a God who in the end always wins. A people that hold on to the hope that God isn't through with us, that we can trust his story that God is at work even when we can't see it, that God shows up in the most unexpected ways and unexpected places, and that God is a God of miracles. And so this morning, as we worship together, my prayer for us is that we would be a people that open our heart in anticipation of a God who meets us right now. And I just encourage you to allow God to search your heart that prayer of Psalm 139, God, search me and know me. Is there any wayward thought in me? Lead me in your way everlasting. And so even right now in your own soul, to just ask God, God, is there any place that I've lost hope? Any place that seems too far gone or too broken or too lost? God, is there anywhere, any place in me that I need you to restore my hope? season of repentance. We need to return to God and just be honest with him about our misplaced hope. Where we begin to trust in other things to provide for us, to save us. The ways that we've built our lives on false and shaky mountains.
place that God is inviting you to return to him, to place your hope back in the only place that it can dwell secure. Because today the Herodium is a pile of rubble and stones, but the kingdom of God still reigns. And then lastly, as we search our hearts this Sunday morning beginning Advent, where are the places that God is inviting you to bring, to be a, per, uh, to be a people of hope, to plant seeds of hope in the chaos of our world? That can look at the mess and trust in a God who is living out a bigger story. That can rise above the headlines and recognize the kingdom of God. And so Lord, I invite you, even as we enter into communion and hold on to the hope that you held out when you broke that bread and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We recognize a hope fulfilled in Jesus when you came, but Lord, we also still hold on to hope that you're coming back. Jesus, you took that cup and you said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so Lord, even this morning, we return to the body and the blood of Christ. We return to that place of forgiveness on the cross. We return to that place of restoration in your resurrection. And we return to that place of hope that we are your children. Whoever receives you, you give the right to become a child of God. So I invite you to come and kneel to ask God to restore a hope that's lost, to repent of a hope that's been misplaced, or to stand up in courage to be a hope bringer in the world in which you live. We open this time in this space, God, for you to move.